Welcome to Paths to Recovery, a family, Al-Anon family group, 12 study. Let's go ahead and open with a moment of silence, followed by the opening prayer, please. Our Father, we come to you as a friend. You have said that where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you will be in the midst. We believe that you're here with us now. We believe this is something you will have us to do and that it has your blessing. We pledge with you always to be honest and search our hearts for weakness and errors that we may deserve your help. We believe that you want us to be real partners with you in this business of living, accepting our full responsibilities and certain that the rewards will be freedom, growth, and happiness. For this, we are grateful. We ask you at all times to guide us, help us daily to come closer to you, and grant us new ways of living our gratitude. Amen. Meeting welcome. The Elanon welcome. We welcome you to this Elanon family group meeting and hope you will find in this fellowship the help and friendship we have been privileged to enjoy. We who live or have lived with the problem of alcoholism understand, as perhaps few others can, we too were lonely and frustrated, but in Elanon we discover that no situation is really hopeless and that it is possible for us to find contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. We urge you to try our program. It has helped many of us find solutions that lead to serenity. So much depends on our own attitudes. And as we learn to place our problems in its true perspective, we find it loses its power to dominate our thoughts and our lives. The family situation is bound to improve as we apply the Allen ideas. Without such spiritual help, living with an alcoholic is too much for most of us. Our thinking becomes distorted by trying to force solutions, and we become irritable and unreasonable without knowing it. The Al-Anon program is based on the suggested 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which we try little by little, one day at a time, to apply to our lives along with our slogans and the serenity prayer. The loving interchange of help among members and daily reading of Elon literature thus makes us ready to receive the priceless gift of serenity. Elon is an anonymous fellowship. Everything that is said here in the group meeting and member to member must be held in confidence. Only in this way can we feel free to say what's in our minds and in our hearts, for this is how we help one another in Elon. Reading of the 12 Steps of Elanon. 1. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. 2. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. 3. Made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood Him. 4. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. 5. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. 6. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 7. Humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. 8. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 9. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. And continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitting it. 11. 
sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And now a reading of the 12 traditions. 1. Our common welfare should come first. Personal progress for the greater number depends on unity. 2. For a group purpose, there is but one authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. 3. The relatives of alcoholics, when gathered together for mutual aid, may call themselves an Al-Nam family group, provided that, as a group, they have no other affiliation. The only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or a friend. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting another group or Elnon or AA as a whole. Five, each Elnon family group has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves, by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. Six, our family groups ought never endorse, finance, or land our name to any outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary spiritual aim. Although a separate entity, we should always cooperate with Alcoholics Anonymous. 7. Every group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. 8. El non that work should remain forever, non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. 9. Our groups as such will never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. The Elnam family groups have no opinion on outside issues, hence our name will never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always to maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, TV, and films. We need guard with special care the anonymity of all AA members. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. Every remind us to place principles above personalities. Amen. <laughs> I love I love the readings of El Nam literature. Put my life together. I'm Fernando. I am a grateful member of the El Nam program, a double winner. Now we're going to read a choice of one of the following. Open letter from an alcoholic, understanding alcoholism, or understanding ourselves, or do's and don'ts. Let's go ahead and understanding alcoholism. Let's do that letter, please. Here we go. Where'd it go? What is alcoholism? The American Medical Association recognizes alcoholism as a disease that can be arrested but not cured. One of the symptoms is an uncontrollable desire to drink. Alcoholism is a progressive illness. As long as alcoholics continue to drink, their, their drive to drink will get worse, if not dealt with. The disease can result in insanity or death. 
The only method of arresting alcoholism is total abstinence. Most authorities agree that even after years of sobriety, alcoholics can never drink again because alcoholism is a lifetime disease. There are many successful treatments for alcoholism today. Alcoholics Anonymous is the best known and widely regarded as the most effective. Alcoholism is no longer a hopeless condition. It is a recognized and treated. It is. Who are alcoholics? All kinds of people are alcoholics, people from all walks of life. Only a small percentage of alcoholics fit the story, stereotype of derelict or bum, panhandling on the streets. Most alcoholics appear to be functioning fa very, fairly well, but their drinking affects some part of their lives. Their family life, their social life, or their work may suffer. It may be all three. Alcoholics are people who drink whose drinking causes a continued and growing problem in any area of their lives. Why do alcoholics drink? Alcoholics drink because they think they have to. They use alcohol as a crutch and, and an escape. They are in emotional pain and use alcohol to kill that pain. Eventually, they depend on alcohol so much that they become convinced they can't live without it. This is the obsession. When some alcoholics try to do without alcohol, the withdrawal symptoms are so overwhelming that they go right back to drinking because drinking seems to be the only way to get rid of the agony. That is the addiction. Most alcoholics would like to be social drinkers. They spend a lot of time and effort trying to control their drinking so that they will be able to drink like other people. They may try drinking on weekends or drinking only a certain, a certain drink, but they can never be sure of being able to stop drinking when they want. They end up getting drunk even when they promise themselves they wouldn't. That is compulsion. It is the nature of this disease that alcoholics do not believe they are ill. This is denial. Hope for recovery lies in their ability to recognize a need for help, their desire to stop drinking, and their willingness to admit that they cannot cope with the problems themselves. This was taken from Alting Hope for Children of Alcoholism, Understanding Alcoholism. Very good. Very good readings. Are there any newcomers out there listening in their first 30 days? This is our welcome to the newcomers. We welcome you. Hang on. Where'd it go? Newcomers welcome. As a newcomer, you may feel that you're here tonight for the alcoholic, that your presence here may teach you how to stop his or her drinking. The truth is you're here because of the alcoholic and not for the alcoholic. You will soon learn that you did not cause the alcoholic to drink. You cannot control the drinking, nor can you cure the alcoholic. You are here for yourself. You and you alone are responsible for dealing with your own pain. This is your program. It is your recovery from the effects of the disease of alcoholism. You will find love, understanding, and a lot of hope from the Alnon family group. The people around you tonight are experiencing, in varying degrees, the hurts, the anger, and the anxiety that you are experiencing. We in Alnon share our experiences because it helps us to focus on ourselves and our recovery. We do this with the use of the Alnon tools of the program. Steps, slogans, literature, which will all be provided to you. 
Al-Anon will work for you if you allow it to. It's as effective as you make it. It's the safe place, the right place to be. Feel free to ask any questions, or you may feel more comfortable just listening. That's fine, too. There are no musts in Elnon. Finally, what you say or hear here and who you see here stays in this room. Your anonymity is protected at all times. And now we will go around the room and introduce ourselves by first name only. Like I said, I'm Fernando, and I am a grateful member of Elnon. Now we'll get a volunteer to read the three obstacles to success in Elnon. Three obstacles. All Elnon discussions should be constructive, helpful, loving, and understanding. In striving towards these ideas, we avoid topics that can lead to dissension and distract us from our goals. One, discussion of religion. Elnon is not allied with any sect or denomination. It is a spiritual program based on no particular form of religion. Everyone is welcome no matter what affiliation or none. Let us not defeat our purpose by entering into discussions concerning specific religious beliefs. 2. Gossip. We meet to help ourselves and others learn and use the Elnon philosophy. In such groups, gossip can have no part. We do not discuss members or others, and particularly not the alcoholic. Our dedication to anonymity gives people confidence in Elon. Careless repeating of matters heard at meetings can defeat the very purpose for which we are joined together. Three, dominance. Our leaders are trusted servants. They do not govern. No member of Elon should direct, assume authority, or give advice. Our program is based on suggestions, interchange of experience, and rotation of leadership. We progress in our own way and pace. Any attempt to manage or direct is likely to have disastrous consequences for group harmony. And for that, thank you very much. Today we're going to be discussing our do's and don'ts. A very famous reading in Elna. And if you're new, this is what to expect if you go to an Elna meeting. This kind of reading, this is just the the foundation of getting the meeting started. Now we will discuss a piece of our literature, the do's and don'ts. Don'ts. Do forgive. Do be honest with yourself. Do be humble. Do take it easy. Tension is harmful. Do play. Find recreations and hobbies. Do keep on doing your best even when you fail. Do learn the facts about alcoholism. Do attend Elna meetings often. Do pray. Don't be self-righteous. Don't dominate, nag, scold, or complain. Don't lose your temper. Don't try to push anyone but yourself. Don't keep bringing up the past or keep checking up on the alcoholic. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't make threats you don't intend to carry out. Don't be overprotective. Don't be a doormat. That's our do's and don'ts of Elon. And we usually have, we ask for secretary announcements and then literature report. You can buy the, the book here, the literature of Elon at the meetings. And we have a treasurer report. 
and we have no dues or fees in Elna, but we do pass the basket to cover group expenses like rent, more purchase of literature to have it available, uh, to support any trusted servants and Elna service arms. Our seventh tradition says we are self-supporting through our own voluntary contributions. Through a group conscience, there's usually no cross-talking in a meeting. Cross-talking is defined as commending one, one another's person's share or a side conversation with your neighbor. In a meeting, it's usually a continuing 12-step study meeting. They usually continue on the book called Paths to Recovery. Uh, they would usually read, and there's some questions in that book. We ask you to uh, tackle two or three questions at a time and give you 20 minutes of silence. And we usually uh, read them and write about them and then discuss them in the group level. That's called a writing meeting, which is highly recommended uh, because it's just you one-on-one -on -one with your higher power, with God, and you get to talk over the, uh, the questions. It's powerful in a group setting. I highly recommend it. Well, thank you very much for coming in today. We're going to to the Elnan uh, discussion and views, how we we do it in Elnan. So I'm going to go ahead and read our last goodbye page, I believe. It's the closing statement. It says, in closing, I would like to say that the opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. The things you heard were spoken in confidence and should be treated as confidential. Keep them within the walls of this room and the confines of your mind. A few special words to those of you who haven't been with us long. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If you try to keep an open mind, you will find help. You will come to realize that there is no situation too difficult to be better and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. We aren't perfect. The welcome we give you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. After a while, you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, you'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. Talk to each other, reason things out with someone else, but let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Instead, let the understanding, love, and peace of the program grow in you one day at a time. Will all who care to join me in the closing with the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thank you guys for coming in today's podcast, Alcoholic Anonymous. I'm Fernando. Uh, I am in recovery, and we're having we're reading a Zoom meeting, page 24. Let's go ahead and open it with a serenity prayer, please. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Okay, today it will be Ray, then Rick, and then me. Okay, Ray? Page 24. The fact? The fact, right? Yes. 
the fact that that the fact is that most alcoholics in the region get obscured have lost the power of the choice and the drink our so-called willpower becomes particularly non-existent we are unable to unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago we are without defense against the first drink tell me yes sir Almost certain consequences follow even in class of beer to cross the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy, rapidly supplanted by the old red bear idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There's a complete failure against this kind of business that keeps one from putting his hands on a hot stove. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how, or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us have begun to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Only to have the thoughts supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the six drink or what's the use anyhow? When is this? When this, when this sort of thing is fully established an individual with alcoholic tendencies he has probably placed himself beyond human aid, and unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions, legions of alcoholics throughout throughout history, but for the grace of God, there would we have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many, so many want to stop, but cannot. There is a solution, Rick. That's me. Yeah. Okay. There's a solution. Most of us, uh, the most of us like the searching, self-searching, the leveling of our pride, measures of the shortcoming, which progress requires, of course, essential consolation. But we thought we saw through that it really worked, and others that we had to believe in the hopeless futility of life that would be a bit living it. When therefore we were approached by those whom the problem had been solved. There was nothing left for us to do but pick up a simple spiritual kit, a simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven had been <coughs> rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence which we not even have dreamed. The great fact is just this, and nothing less, that we had had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. The central fact of our life today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. Ray? Okay, hang on. If you're serious alcoholism, huh? He's last. What? That's me. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> if you were are as seriously alcoholic as we were, believe there is no middle or the road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return to human aid, we had two. We had what two alternatives? One was go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consequence consequences of our intolerable situation as best we could. And the other to accept, to expect 
to accept personal how this we did because we honestly wanted to and we're willing to make the effort. Amen. Page 62, please. What page? 62. My sir? Yes, sir. Selfishness and self-fairness speak of the root of all our trouble. Driven by hundred forms of self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity, we separate ourselves from fellows and retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, sometimes seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that for some time in the past we have made a decision based on self, which later places in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourself, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run right though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had, had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying our own power. We had to have God's help. Ray? Yeah. This is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new triumphant art which we pass freedom. Rick? Well, we sincerely took a position of all sorts and were about to lose follow. We had a new employer, being all powerful, we provided what we needed. If we kept close to him, and performed his work well. Sandwich on such a footing became less and less interested in ourselves in a little plan of designs. More and more we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. When we felt a new power flow in, and as we joined the spine, we discovered that we could face life successfully. And we became conscious of his presence and began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and thereafter. We were reborn. We were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those that would have of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. Page 76, please. 76. When ready. When ready, we say something like this. My creator, I'm now willing that you should you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove me from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me the strength as I go out from as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have been we have been completed step seven. Amen. Page eighty six, please. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead, considering our plans for the day, 
before we even begin, we asked God to direct our thinking, especially asking him for forces or self-pitying, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our faculties with insurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our own thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is clear of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We might not be able to determine which course to take. Here, we ask God for inspiration. It intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced or having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. Okay. We usually, we usually do the period of meditation with the prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. That we've been given whatever we need to take care of on such problems. When we ask especially for freedom from self-will and are careful to make no request for ourselves only, we may ask, oh, I read it. yeah, oh. we may ask for, for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. If circumstances warrant, if we ask our wives and friends to join us in morning meditation. If we belong to a religious domination which requires definite morning devotion, we attend that also. If non members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles we have been discussing. There are many helpful books out there also. Suggestions of these may be obtained by one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see what religious people are right, make use what they have to offer. I lost my place. As we go through the day. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done, thy will be done. We are then in less much danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decision. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. <clears throat> Page 416, please. 416. It helped me. Wow. Uh, it helped me a great deal. It helped me a great deal. It helped me a great deal to become convinced that alcoholism was a disease, not a moral issue. That I that I had been drinking as a result of a compulsion, even though I had not been aware of the compulsion at the time, and that sobriety was not a matter of willpower. The people of AA had something that looked much better than what I had, but I was afraid to let go of what I had in order to try something new. There was a certain sense of security in the familiar. My turn? Yes, sir. 
that last acceptor is proven key to my drinking problem. After I've been around AA for several months, shaping up alcohol and pills, not finding the work the program working very well. I was able to uh, see or say, okay, God, it's true. Of all people, strangers are being seen. Uh, even though I didn't get my permission, really, really am an alcoholic of course. It's all right with me now. What am I going to do about it? When I stopped living in the problem, began living in the answer, the problem went away. From that moment on, I have not one single compulsion to drink. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, self-fact of my life, unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. Shakespeare said, all the world's, all the world's a stage and all the men and women murdering Morelli players. He forgot to mention that I was the chief critic. Critic, uh, I always able to see the, the flaw in every person, every situation, and I was glad to point it out because I knew you wanted perfection, just as I did. A and acceptance have taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us, and a bit of bad in the best of us. That we are all children of God and we each have the right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I complain about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. For years I was sure the worst thing that could happen to a nice guy like me is that I would turn out to be an alcoholic. Today I find it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It proves that I don't know what's good for me. And if I don't know what's good for me, then I don't know what's good for or bad for you or anyone. So better off, I don't give advice, don't figure. I know what's best for me. I just accept my life and life's terms as it is today, especially my own. As it actually is, before AA, I judge myself by my intentions, while the world will judge me by my actions. Acceptance has been the answer to my meritable problems. It is as though AA has given me a new pair of glasses. Max and I have been married now for 35 years. Prior to our marriage, when she was a shy, scrawny adolescent, I was able to see things in her that others couldn't necessarily see. Things like beauty, charm, gaiety, a gift of being easy to talk to, a sense of humor, many other fine qualities. It was as if I had, rather than a Midas touch, which turned everything to gold. A magnifying mind that magnified whatever it focused on. Over the years, as I thought about Max, her good qualities grew and grew. And we married. And all these qualities became more and more apparent to me. And we were happier and happier. But then as I drink more and more, the alcohol seemed to affect my vision. Instead of continuing to see what was good about my wife, I began to see her defects. And the more I focused on my mind, on her defects, the more they grew and multiplied. Every defect I pointed out to her became greater and greater. Each time I told her she was was a nothing, she receded, receded, receded a little more into no, nowhere. The more I drank, the more she whittled. Okay. <laughs> then one day in the I was told that my lenses were on, my glasses were backwards. 
courage to change is learning for men not like I should change my marriage, but rather I should change my life, myself and learn how to accept my spouse as she was. AA had given me a new pair of glasses. I can then again focus on my wife's good qualities and watch them grow, grow, and grow. I can do the same thing with an AA meeting. The more I focus my mind on its defects, late stars, long, drunk along, cigarette smoke, the worse the meeting becomes. But when I try to see what I can add to the meeting rather than what I can get out of it, and when I focus my mind on what's good about it rather than what's wrong with it, the meeting keeps getting better and better. When I focus on what's good today, I have a good day. And when I focus on what's bad, I have a bad day. If I focus on a problem, the problem increases. If I focus on the answer, the answer increases. Page 420, please. Perhaps the best thing of all for me is to remember that my community is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher my expectations of Max and other people are, the lower is my serenity. I can watch my serenity level rise when I discard my expectations, but then my rights try to move in, and they too can't force my serenity level down. I have to discard my rights as well as my expectations by asking myself, how important is it really? How important is it compared to my serenity, to my emotional sobriety? When I place more value on my serenity and sobriety than on anything else, I can maintain them at a higher level, at least for the time being. Success really is a key to my relationship with God today. I never just sit around do nothing while I wait for him to tell me what to do. I rather I do whatever is in front of me that needs to be done and leave results up to him however it turns out. That's God's will for me. I must keep my magic magnifying mind on my acceptance and off my expectations for my serenity is directly proportional to the level of acceptance. When I remember this, I can see I've never had it so good. Thank God for AA. Amen. Okay, now we turn to page 552. 552, please. 552? Yes, sir. Yeah. He said, in effect, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or the thing that you resent, you will be free. If you ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it. Go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you will find you have come to mean it and want it for them. And you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassionate Understanding and love. My turn? Yeah. It worked for me then, and it has worked for me many times since. And it will work for me every time I'm willing to work work it. Sometimes I have to ask for for willingness, but it too always comes, and because it works for me, it will work for all of us. As As another great man says, the only real freedom a human being can ever know is doing what you ought to do because you want to do it. Mm. This great experience has released me from the bondage of hatred and place it with, uh, with love. And it's just really another permanent hatred of the truth I know. I get everything I need from Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I need, I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it's just what I wanted all the time. Amen. Turn to page 100, please. 100. <clears throat> Both you and the new man 
must walk day by day in this path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look, when we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstance. So right here. Right here. Turn to page 83, please. If we were painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor will shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know we will know peace, no matter how far down the scale we have gone. We will see how our experience can benefit others. That that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to, which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these are these extravagant promises we think not? They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Amen. Page 85, please. <laughs> it is easy to <laughs> let up on this. Spiritual program that listed our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do so. Alcoholism is a subtle fault. We are not cured of alcoholism, but we have the daily reprieve of the conscience and the maintenance of the spiritual condition. Every day is a day where we must carry out that vision of God's will unto all of our activities. How many have been served thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. <clears throat> are these, are, these are the thoughts that must come with us, must go with us constantly. If we can exercise our willpower along the line, all we wish, we would probably use the will. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. If we carefully follow directions, we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. We, but we must go further, and that means more action. Page 43, please. Page what? 4-3. 43. What do you say? 4-3. 43. What's that? 4-3. 43. Oh, it's the last one. Can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Amen. Woohoo! Amen. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful. Thank you very much, guys. And we'll see you yeah, tomorrow you at noon. Noontime tomorrow. We'll see, you again. we'll see you again tomorrow. All right, guys. Give them heaven. Have a great time. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye, Rick, and bye, Ray. Bye bye.
practice on recovery. In an hour number two of every night, we have someone who is in recovery talking about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Uh, experience, strength, and hope is the name of the game in hour number two. And uh, Val Roney is joining us tonight uh, in hour number two, 27 years in recovery. Val, welcome to Recovery Coast to Coast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nice to have you here. Susan Bernash is my co-host tonight. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I'm, Hello. Just, I'm just in awe because I've already heard so many stories from Val, so this is going to be great. Val is kind of an icon in the Pacific Northwest, yes. uh, both in the professional field and also in the recovery area as well. Uh, take us back to the beginning, if, if you would, 27 years ago, uh, and, and, and where it all began. Val Roney, this is your life. <laughs> Thank and you. I'm Ralph Edwards. Never mind. Neil, I haven't seen you. I was trying to think for how many years. It's been a long time. And you still look great. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's a lovely, lovely soul. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, lovely soul, that Neil Scott. I think we did some college time together. We did indeed, way back when. Yeah, didn't you? But we go back to 27 years ago. 27 years ago, um, I had gone out. I had been a court administrator and... The people I worked with would often come out. I ended up marrying a judge's son, and the people I had worked with in the court system would often come out to my house to see what it was like to live in the country. And I would take them up to the sleazy Duval cocktail lounge. Actually, it was a tavern, a dark, dang tavern with a lizard on the side of the building. A lizard? To entertain them when I could, we could have been enjoying the bucolic setting of the farmhouse, but... Um, I was into drinking at that point, and uh, I had been out late with them. I had gone home about 2 o'clock in the morning when the bars closed. They always went home at a decent hour. I stayed, closed the bar, went home, had two little tiny children, and woke my husband up to raise cane with him about not taking me out dancing enough. Mm. Woke my children in the process, was being obnoxious, intoxicated, and then I passed out. And in the morning, he was at the bottom of our bed, and he said, that will never happen in this house again. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to move. Too bad I'm not going to have the kids, and mm. too bad I don't know how I'm going to afford all this, and too bad, but that's what I have to do if I want to continue my lifestyle. So uh, got up at some point in the day, and I got, had a knock on the door opened the door and it was an old drinking buddy, somebody who I used to see at uh, one of the hotel bars in downtown Seattle. And she'd sit up at the bar and the men, the men would all be sitting around her listening to her. And I thought, that's what, exactly what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so I love watching the her. The center of attention. The center of attention with a little universe. power. And uh, here she was at my door and I'm in the worst shape I've been in in a long time, depressed, mm. anxious, sad, mad, hopeless. And uh, she said, you know, I heard you were trying to quit drinking. And she said, I'm about two minutes sober, and <laughs> you look like you could use some help. So she said, uh, I'll tell you what, we'll start AA in Duval. We'll start, not AA, a 12-step program mm -hmm. in Duval. And uh, uh, 
she said, you can be the secretary because you know how to take shorthand and I'll be the president because I'm highly organized. Now, if any of you know about 12-step programs, that shows you how much my darling friend Jackie W. knew about 12-step programs. Oh, my goodness. It was a business. It was going to be an organized business. Wow. Well, at that point, it was a respite in a storm. I thought, I'll follow her anywhere. It'll be better than having to move, etc. You know, it's interesting because it obviously reminds me of back to the days when Dr. Bob and, and Bill W. Exactly. Just one, one drunk helping another. Yeah. And, and two people keeping the other person sober. And that's exactly what we did. Mm. For many moons, the Catholic Church priest in our community... I uh, had been an old friend of mine from childhood, and I asked him if we could use a room, and he said, absolutely, you can have any room in this church for those purposes. And she and I would go every Friday night and talk, tell each other our stories, so we got so sick of one another that we... It was just the two of you? Just the two of us? Wow. a long time. Mm. Wow. And uh, the, when we got tired of one another, we saw our husbands. You take group conscience at all? <laughs> <laughs> we were just lucky we made it you there on the, Friday night. You passed the basket. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kept me, I mean, she's a fascinating woman. Anybody who knows Jackie W., she's fascinating. And she kept me going, kept my adrenaline going, and kept me from drinking, literally. So eventually I read in the paper about uh, recovering an alcoholic priest who'd been in treatment 17 times. And I, I was still toxic. I called him at 6.30 one morning and I said, we need some help to grow our little group in Duval. Would you come out? And he said, you bet. So he came out. We put flyers all over every place in the Snoqualmie Valley. And 250 people showed up that no night. Way. Is that oh right? my That was goodness. the beginning of our group. That was the beginning of people coming from here and there. And wow, that's amazing. There were other drinkers in Duval who needed help. <laughs> they joined us. Wow. And, and that was the beginning of my odyssey. Um, so you never went through a treatment? Never, until about five years later. Oh. In the meantime, my same mentor said, you know, you're sitting home here with the cows, talking to them. I think your skills would be better utilized elsewhere. Why don't you think about going back to school? Mm. So I was working at the time, and I um, would work all day and then go to Seattle U at night. My husband, bless his heart, played nanny and housekeeper and cook and bottle watcher. And I completed my two years at Seattle U and entered the field of addiction work in 19, mm. really began volunteering in 1980. Mm. Where did you begin volunteering? Um, wherever Jackie would tell, you tell me I got to go, yeah. But my first job was at Eastside Alcohol Center in Bellevue. Andy yeah. Brennan. Andy was just exiting. Ah, okay. He was going to Alaska, right? He was going to Alaska, and a fellow named Kent Solom was coming mm -hmm. in from South Dakota. He was the next director, and he had a lot of faith in my ability that I didn't have and gave me opportunity to really dig in and do some good work. How long, Val, were you in recovery at this point? Two minutes. Two minutes? Yeah. Plus? Yeah. Give or take? Yeah. And, and toxic. Yeah. You know, uh, Yes. <laughs> it 
was a miracle. I think I had some divine help. Boy, I guess. Yeah. I guess. And some skills. How did, your, how did your family react to this, this sudden change in you? I mean, for years you had been, you know, getting progressively worse in your drinking, and it, and it reached that point where, you know, you just, the story you just told, um, did your did your husband, was he supportive of what you were doing? Was Absolutely. He was fabulous. He, we married in 1972. He had sobered up at Shadle. Ah, okay. In 1968, so just a few years before we met. So he was dry when mm -hmm. I met him, mm -hmm. but he's a wonderful human. So he just had a good program on his own. He was honorable and trustworthy and all those good things. Um, he was very supportive. I think he was so great. I, I had his father now deceased was the superior court judge and he and I were very much alike. And I think when my husband married me, he married his dad mm. and he just wanted to keep mm. us under the radar, mm. keep us quiet, but he was very, very grateful to see me get sober. I'm Neil Scott. My co-host tonight is the lovely and talented Susan Burnett. Oh, thank you, Neil. Val, you said um, five years before you went into treatment. What what sort of made that happen? Well, what was, what was the step to get you there? You know, Susan, I was successful at what I was doing. I was getting praise and love and warm fuzzies and I simply couldn't accept it. I kept doing things oh, the way I've okay. always done it because that was all I knew how to do. Of course, point of reference. So at some point, someone suggested that I try recovery, that I get into treatment mm -hmm. and um, suggested I go to residence 12. Well, how about that? And I thought, oh my God, they'll think I've been drinking. But I was so sick, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, that I I just gave up and went to rest well. Wow. For 30 days. And my family got to participate in family treatment, right, which right. was lovely because we had talked about, you know, AA and 12-step programs in Duval were a little different. Um, the families came, we had Alan on, the kids came. I think they played spin the bottle out in the street <laughs> while we were inside having a meeting, but um, we were family. Mm -hmm. So my family had been exposed to 12 steps, but they really didn't have an opportunity to talk about what it had been like and what it was like now. Mm -hmm. Now, right. Jeff, you were asking right, about right. Neil. They were just darn glad I was different mm -hmm. and better and mm -hmm. healthier because I've been a raging Irish drunk, and I wasn't fun to be around. Scared. So, I went to Res 12 for 30 days. Now, this is when Res 12 was at uh, St. Thomas. It was at the old St. Thomas St. Edward mm -hmm. Seminary. Right. We were in the convent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right, initial place. And they let me know that I was just an ordinary person off the street. Get in here and do what you're told to do. And it was a wonderful experience, changed my life. For the first time, I'd been raised in this Irish Catholic family where from as early as I can remember, it was the woman's job to, you know, take care of it, right. handle it. Right. I was the eldest. I was the only girl in the family. Yeah. And um, So you weren't taking care of yourself. I was really. tired. Yeah. I was taking care yeah. of everybody else. Yeah. Didn't have a clue what self-care meant. 
So what, what does that feel like the first week you're there and you don't have anyone to take care of? Well, it means that a lot of feelings surface, a lot mm. of unresolved issues and unfinished business comes up and there you are. And, 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 and what, I mean, were there, were there times in the programming, you have been in basically sober and in recovery for a while. What was it in the program that really was helpful to you? Everything. Really? Truly, probably the first helpful thing was having a healthy relationship with women. Interesting, and we get a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. I had worked for men in really wonderful jobs my whole life in the criminal justice arena as a paralegal, as a legislative aide. I had some great experiences, but I really never had the opportunity to appreciate being woman. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean radical female. It no, means just, no. you know, feeling like I had an equal place on the planet. Right, right. And that's what I got the opportunity to do at the Revs. Oh, that's really interesting. And so learning I, some self-care, yeah. some how to slow down. Oh, my God. In addition to booze, I'd been a speed freak. When I was 16, I went to my gynecologist because I was afraid I was going to be short and fat like my mother. And he said, and I was five foot two, 110 pounds. And he said, well, here, uh -huh. take these. Oh, right. <clears throat> and it was a strong amphetamine, um, methadrine. And of course, if you're an alcoholic personality, if one pill is good, a hundred yeah, or better. Yeah, sure. So I lived on speed and I was just thin as a rail. And then From the I time you were 16. 15, yeah, yeah. And I learned to drink. And the alcohol would slow me down, so I could go, I could speed through life all day, and, and then I, I could have alcohol. Put the brakes on. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And I was drinking with people that I thought were very important, you know, the, in the criminal justice arena. I met the policemen and the attorneys and the judges that invited me to come over to Cocktail Lounge after work and sit with them, and I was just, oh boy, this is a big deal. These yeah. important people yeah. want me. Like starstruck. Yeah. Yeah. So. I thought it was a big deal, but you know, I just never knew when to quit. So you had to slow down. I mean, I needed the treatment to helped you to yeah. slow down. Yeah. To it, begin to slow down. To begin to slow yeah. down. And 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 isn't that really sort of the first process? I mean, isn't that one of the things that people need to do? They need to stop to pay attention. Well, there's that saying: we need to become human being yeah. instead of human doing. Oh, absolutely. And so for me, I've never known anything else except if you had an issue or a problem or needed something done, just go harder and faster. And I was slowly dying. I mean, I was literally wearing out. Mm -hmm. That's right. My, my mentor used to call me buzz ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's because you were buzzing around? I was buzzing faster mm -hmm. than all of them. So, so did you build a support system within, I mean, a lot of times we hear that, you know, for a woman, for anybody in recovery, it, it's so important to have a support system. I mean, you can't do this by yourself. Being in an inpatient treatment program, a lot of times people really connect with those people. They're, I mean, they're going through something together. There is a bond that happens there. Do you stay connected with those people after you leave? Absolutely. It's amazing how I run into them all the time. I went to Vegas. I was invited to Vegas a couple of years ago to speak at the International Women's Conference. And I looked up and here were a couple of the gals from 
that mm. I'd been through treatment with right. the rest. Right. Mm. So that was yeah, it's incredible. You you learn to appreciate your own gender. And I've always loved men. I never had a problem with that. But um, I also had a great deal of anger at men, though, when I went into treatment. Because my dad had died from alcoholism mm -hmm. when I was six. He was a, just an accomplished, lovely soul. He was my soulmate. And he left me, boy, when yeah, I was six. Oh, and then yeah. I had to leave, live with all these other meanies. Mm -hmm. Three brothers that hated me and... A mother that wasn't real nuts about herself and couldn't appreciate being woman mm -hmm. and so I got to do a lot of work at the RAF a lot of work and treatment yeah. visiting with Val Roney tonight in hour number two talking about recovery sharing experience strength and hope uh, she finds another alcoholic in, in Jackie and they they started out in the, out the country uh, and several years later she goes into race 12 now, when you go into Res 12, you, you find this oasis, you find this, uh, this, this healing, this wonderful supportive group. You're there for 30 days. What happens at the end of treatment? Because I'm always fascinated by the fact that, that I don't know anybody who decides on a bright sunny day, I think I'm going to go into treatment because I want to do something about my drinking. Uh, they, they usually go in with some resistance, not wanting to be there, not wanting to either give up the family or whatever it happens to be. Yet by the end of the treatment cycle, they have developed this friendship, the bonds, the family, mm -hmm. and, and everyone has come together. And then suddenly, Val, you're leaving tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Transitioning back out. One of the things that happened in treatment happened for me is that we learn coping skills, we learn mm -hmm. sober living skills, and we hear that saying, we don't ask you to change anything, we just ask you to change everything, mm -hmm. and I'm, right. oh my God, mm -hmm. resistant to mm -hmm. change, and um, some trepidation. One of the things that was highly recommended for me was that I get out of the, the treatment field for a while, and mm -hmm. I think that was a very good recommendation because I had some leadership ability and it seemed like I moved right up to director or manager of the agency and I was no more prepared mm. for that than I was to um, decide whether or not it snowed. Um, so I was offered another job as a probation officer in the criminal justice arena and that was great because I could minister to people, my focus was people who committed alcohol or drug-related crimes for a special task force. And I was able to tend to minister to their needs. Uh, and it was a transitional time when usually if you committed a crime, you'd go to jail. Mm -hmm. Now that the criminal justice system was saying, we're going to assess you, and if you're appropriate, we're going to let you go to treatment instead of mm. go to jail. Right. It's really a neat time. Right, right. So I could do that, but I never felt like I had the responsibility for the whole world. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were very cooperative and kind to me and uh, in the criminal justice system. So I did that for three years and loved it. Just loved that opportunity. And continued to grow in your own right, personal recovery. Right. Continued somehow. Well, first of all, I had the Barracuda behind me the whole time. She, 
my mentor seldom left my side. God love her. I mean, she let me have my own life, but she was there. And I might add, she's by your side tonight, too. She is by my side. Oh, she has been years. for 27 yeah, years. That's yeah, great. We've grown up together, and I adore her as much today as I did then. Um, and it's been a love-hate relationship sometimes. You know, it's not all roses, but my God, I just really respected her. And I was, I, for a long time, was just afraid to not... To go against your wishes. <laughs> so I had to grow up there too and get some autonomy. Um, I just kind of, I really loved the recovery program. Mm -hmm. I, I felt something there spiritually that I had never, ever felt before. I was raised in an organized religion. Pray, pay, and obey. It quit working for me. Yeah. Mm. You know, it just quit working for me. Mm. By the way, that dear little priest that um, gave me free access to any room in that church mm -hmm. that we needed to help the people died of alcoholism. Oh. He called me right before he died and he said, I have Alzheimer's, but he said it was caused by alcoholism. And he said, I've never talked about that, but I want you to know that. Oh, wow. And I just, I said, you have no idea how much, how many and how much you've helped. Yeah. Yeah. So, because I'd gone to another church in town, Jackie and I were trying to start a women's group, and we um, went to another, the, the other church in town, and they said, oh, well, ha can we use a room? Can we rent a room? I said, and they said, well, we'll have to check with the deacons. And three weeks later, they got back to us and said, you know, we don't have any alcoholics in our church, and so oh, we're not oh, going to let you use oh, our, any of our, we have no need for your service. Wow. Um, we meet there today. You know, 27 years later, really? they let us rent a room, but... They found um, a few alcoholics there, I guess, <laughs> along the way. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I don't want to lose track of where I was here. Mm. Um, I... Uh, I had a strong program, and people kept coming into my life that encouraged me to stay on board, to mm -hmm. follow the program, you know, to do what was recommended, which is go to meetings, read the literature, call your sponsor, share things with your sponsor. Don't do like you used to do. If you get mad at one girlfriend, find another one and mm -hmm. tell her the sad tale of woe. And then when that doesn't work, find out. You know, I stuck with Jackie mm -hmm. the whole time. She knew me inside out, warts and all, and loved me anyway. And that's what I found was no matter what I had done, she loved me unconditionally, non-judgmentally. I mean, she tried to change me a few times, but... <laughs> Mostly it was that relationship with a person that I had never had, you know, an honorable relationship that I'd never allowed myself to have before. And what about working the steps, the importance of that? Working the steps was vital because I, yeah, I've been used to doing things my own way and <laughs> if it didn't work harder, faster. Yeah, at the res, I had to tell my story and I discovered some amazing things through telling that story. I had married three times men who had alcoholic fathers right. trying to replace my alcoholic father who had died when I was six. Mm. Mm. Now that didn't happen consciously. No. But that was something that was revealed. Um, Val, now you had said 
you know, going in, you went into a woman's only program. Mm -hmm. Do you do you feel like? I mean, we, we, we see a lot of things, you know, women's programs, men and women's mix. What, what do you think a woman's program has to offer? What did it offer you that might not have happened in a co-ed group? The most important thing it offered me was an identity. Oh, okay. What I've seen happen in co-ed groups over the years is women are raised to be such caretakers they either start taking care of the male population and treatment, or they capitulate, just give up and defer to the men, mm -hmm. or they decide to fall in love with one of them and uh. have a little instant meaningful romance and treatment. Right. None of which works. No. And women, you know, are so uh, used to having their identity based on their relationships. Right. They don't have a clue most of the time what they like, what they want, what they don't like, what they don't want. So that was the beginning of my chance to have my own identity. And how did that work in your relationship? Did your husband see a change in you? I mean, after this, were you claiming your own identity? You know, truthfully, I just think he was so glad to see my patience, tolerance, and kindness surface that he didn't about anything else. He was just glad to have somebody that wasn't so tilted. Right. And how about your children? Now you said you have one or two? I have two girls and um, I think when you raise children in a late stage of any kind of disease, kids really suffer. And mine had. They were so fearful. My first recollection is that I went to them one day and working these 12 steps, the tenth step is about continuing to take personal inventory and when you're wrong, promptly admitting it. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to my kids at some point in my recovery and saying, I'm not very proud of the way I've been acting as a parent, as your mother. And I'm really sorry for that, but I want you to know that I'm going to work on it. And I may not be perfect and I may not completely succeed, but I am working on it. And their little eyes just lit up and they got big smiles and they it was like, oh, mom's a real human being. Wow. And, it, and it, it creates an example for them. Well, and it provided them with hope. Yeah, yeah. So um, I got recruited shortly thereafter to work at Residence 12. I think um, probably I had gone through there in 83. 84. Quit smoking while I was there. Oh, did you? Wonderful. I was a heavy smoker. Heavy, I mean, just compulsive at everything I did. Switched from booze to food and was heavy smoker and starting to get a little too interested in gambling. and Right. Uh, so I got a chance to look at all that stuff. But anyway, in about 1987, I was recruited to work at Res 12 and be their intake manager, the person who helped get the women that wanted to come to treatment, making sure they were appropriate mm -hmm. for that kind of treatment. And then I did meditation groups and some, some other jobs that needed to be done. So I worked there until 1994. Wow, yeah. okay. Yeah, great experience. It's a lot of history at yeah. this 12, but 25 years, a lot happened. Yeah, a lot. Well, how do you feel to be on the other side, though? I mean, 
you come there, you have to get an assessment. How does it feel to be the person on the other side? I mean, there's got to be this, this, this feeling of great gratitude and joy that now you can pass it on, pay it forward. It absolutely helped to know that I to have had the experience of being there before. I knew what to say. I knew what those women were feeling. Many of them still are in touch with me today. Like on their sobriety anniversaries, I'll get cards that say, remember where we were? Uh, I went to Hawaii. I, I spoke at a conference in Hawaii. Um, oh gosh, I don't even remember what year, but a woman greeted me at the airport, someone that I'd met at the Rev, and she had a lay, beautiful flowered, fragrant flowered lay, and she put it around my neck and said, thank you for saving my life. And I said, I didn't save your life, honey. You saved your own right. life. But thank you for, for thinking yeah. of me. Oh, yeah. For remembering me. What a, what a great joy. Oh, absolutely. Um... So I'm glad. I'm very glad I had that experience. I got tired of all the estrogen after that many years, and <laughs> anxious to get back to co-ed work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I did that. I was starting to miss the guys. Yeah, but now, but now you knew what your place was with those. Guys. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that makes a difference. Absolutely. It? Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting thing with the female dynamics. Learned a lot about codependency too. You know, in the process of that. Very important to just take care of me and my side of the street, mm -hmm. not try and save the world or change other people. Um, now, how, I mean, you're a counselor, so you've come full circle. How do you help other women with, with trying to figure that part out? You know, sometimes just talking about it, bringing it to their awareness, because we simply sometimes don't know. Right. How? Is it, do you, is it habit? Is it, you know, something that happens in childhood? You watch this? The culture. Mm. The culture. So You're our caretakers. To, take care of it. Right. So you mm. have to sort of refocus what the thought process yeah. is. Absolutely. And, and it's not about saying, stop taking care of people and be selfish. It, it, it's about being a fuller person so that you can take care of yourself and take care of other people. A wonderful psychiatrist that I paid a lot of money to taught me probably one of the most important things I've ever learned. Dr. Raymond Bell in Bellevue taught me we must do for others what they can't do for themselves. We must not do for others what they can do for themselves. Mm. Oh, that's, that's, wow, that's a great Those, distinction. Yeah, that's advice I've ever had yeah. and used often. Say yeah. that again for people listening and, and maybe won't even write this down. This is very profound. Yeah. We must do for others what they cannot do for themselves. We must not do for others what they can do for themselves. Val Roney joining us tonight on Recovery Coast to Coast. Nothing uh, passing her by. We must always do for others what they cannot do for themselves. We must never do for others what they can do for themselves. Words to live by. Wow, that's, uh, that is indeed awesome. Val, we, we talked about St. Jackie tonight um, and, and all of the uh, the wonderful insight that she has given you as, as a mentor, as a sponsor, as a recovery coach, which is the new term that people are using now, recovery coach. What about when you're in a 12-step program and now becoming a sponsor, uh, becoming a mentor, becoming a recovery coach for others? 
What has that been like for you? Well, for me, it was real important to learn and remember not to be a parent to those women that asked me to be their sponsor, to be a partner in recovery for them, to um, guide them, to model healthy behavior instead of telling them what to do showing them what to do, you know, mm -hmm. modeling by example, right, right, and doing the mantra, go to meetings, read the big book, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. work the steps, have fun. Probably what kept Jackie and I alive was the fun that we had. We socialized a lot. She came to the farm and modeled for me what healthy domesticity looked like. I had been raised on television, you know, where I saw Beaver Cleaver's mother in an apron with a spray can, and that was all you had to do to clean the house. Mm -hmm. And I had dropped more turkeys than I could ever want to count when intoxicated. Are we talking boyfriends to... now, or are we talking no. about house? No, no, I'm talking about oh. trying, to cook, trying to cook turkeys on Thanksgiving and Christmas mm -hmm. when I was under the influence. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. That was one of the greatest joys of recovery, oh. was learning that I didn't have to drop turkeys when I stuffed them. And probably a great joy for your family. Too. Very much. Yeah. Very much. Something to look forward to. So I was just thinking about one thing. Speaking of fun, some guy came to the door one day and he said, do you sell pigs? And at that point, Jackie was visiting and she said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're kidding. I'm thinking, you're kidding. Jackie, we do beef cattle, not pigs. And but we had some pigs, and this guy was having a wedding, and he wanted a roasted pig or a cooked pig. Anyway, I hope the health department isn't listening. Oh, <laughs> we thought we'd use the restaurant uptown to cook it, and they were closed, and so we cut the thing in half. and you cut, cut the pig in half? Cut the pig in half, put the first half in the oven and cooked it. <laughs> the oven was so hot, the pig's ears fell off, and so we crafted ears with tinfoil. Are you sober this time? We're sober. We are the hell you dead think? sober. We put the, the pig ears in with toothpicks, cooked the hind end of the thing, and the tail got too crisp and fell off. So we made it. I said, okay, now we're going to put this thing together to give it to the man that's buying it. And what are we going to put around the middle so he can't tell that we've cut it in half? And Jackie said, oh, we just go uptown and get a bunch of parsley. <laughs> And we went uptown and bought the parsley oh. out in two stores and came home and made a nice little belt, a parsley <laughs> belt for the pig. A parsley skirt. Parsley That's a whole lot of pig. Oh. This little poor oh, man came man. and picked it up. We never heard from him again. He never reordered. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of the pig business, right? Oh, oh my goodness. Jackie, yeah, never, never missing an opportunity to, uh, to to be an entrepreneur there. Well, we had to learn, you know, before we went back oh. to work, we had to learn how to support ourselves. So we were doing some That's farm fun. work. That's, yeah. You know, and, and recovery is fun. Should be yeah, fun. Should be. You know, uh, in, in the big book, it says we are not a, a dull lot. That's right. And and that certainly is Or true. glum. Or glum lot, rather. Glum lot. And, and you know, a lot of people... At their first experience with 12-step programs are amazed at the laughter oh. and the fun. They expect us to be going into these church basements and very morose and very down and dreary and, and what they hear is laughter and, and what they get is unconditional love. The fact that we can 
laugh at one another and with one another is one of the greatest gifts of all because we weren't laughing when we were drinking. Yeah. You know, yeah. It started out being fun. You thought you were going to have fun in about 15 minutes, but it ended up being very painful. Yeah. Yeah. Very and, painful. And and it's a new way of living. Absolutely. It is a new way of living that gets progressively better. You know, I I often say that you know just as the disease of addiction is progressive in a negative sense, recovery is progressive in a positive, positive. sense. That the bright side of addiction is recovery. And as it gets better as you grow in this wonderful, miraculous program. Yeah. And there's a lot of work to be done. You know, it's not easy. It's to a simple heal. program, but not an easy program. That's right. It's it's challenging to heal and you have to do the kind of things that let your mind and body, soul, spirit heal. Um, what were some of the big challenges for you in the program? Well, I switched from booze to food. Mm. Nobody told me moderation. You know, mm. I didn't hear the word if they did mention it. So that was very challenging. I gained a lot of weight, and um, then I quit smoking finally, which was a good thing. But my metabolism was so confused right. that I gained oh, some yeah. more weight. Yeah. And I, I really had to learn to go inward. That was one of my greatest challenges, to quit being a buzz-ass and mm -hmm. to learn to be a serene human. So fortunately, I met meditation and loved it. And it wasn't real sophisticated. It was just, you know, tell your brain to be quiet for a few minutes right. to honor the peace of life. And a lot of things were revealed once I learned to quit buzzing. Well, and don't you find that, um, you know, that buzzing is really to hide, to stay away from that quiet time. That's what you're doing. You're yeah. just taking up space. I think at some level, you know, I heard along the way that we're only aware of 15% of what goes on, that 85% is subconscious, mm -hmm. unconscious. And we have pictures, memory, in our memory cells, we have pictures mm -hmm. of all of our life events. And I think there's just a great deal of fear and trepidation about all of that stuff resurfacing. So if we keep busy on the outside, then we don't have to stop mm -hmm. long enough to feel. Mm -hmm. um, gradually, when you're clean and sober, when you're operating with a full set of dishes, <laughs> those feelings, that unre the unresolved issues, the, the stuff that's sitting in your belly, start surfacing and you get an invitation to heal it. To learn new ways mm -hmm. to do things. Any compulsions to use to drink? I've had a couple, but only a couple, and they were fleeting, and I talked about it. I mean, it scared me. It just scared me. I went into Nordstrom's to get uh, some clothes, and I went to look for the large women's section, and the whole floor had been com converted to petite sizes. Oh. <laughs> and there were these little tiny ladies, and I'm not little tiny, and I wanted to, I wanted it was Christmas time and I wanted hot buttered rum and when I didn't see that around I wanted to grab a cigarette out of the woman's hand and smoke it. <laughs> That's how long ago that was. But no, mm -hmm. I, my life is so non-alcohol drug today that I, mm -hmm. I, I look for cookie, milk and cookies instead. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's been a long, uh, a long glorious path for you. Yeah best thing that's ever happened. What are some of the highlights of, of your recovery? That my daughter came to me 10 years ago and said, Mom, I have a Mother's Day present for you. I've quit drinking. Oh, wow. Um, I have 
been invited to speak at some wonderful conferences around the state and outer faith, out of the state. Um, I've won a couple awards. Not that that's important, but it was sure nice to be acknowledged. I won the governor's. Jackie and I both won the Governor's Elder Award, probably because we outlived everybody. <laughs> and then she said something real uh, affirming, like, that award and a dollar will get us a ride on the Metro Transit. Probably not even a dollar. And then I won, I won the Residence 12 and Nichols right. Award yes, honoring did. women that um, impact and Jackie other did women. And Jackie did, too. Yeah. So mm. We're... Uh, I feel like we've been gifted in having this opportunity to touch other lives. And and can I just, one of the things that I always find is interesting, and Neil has been, you know, sort of talking about this, this anonymity versus advocacy. So what you're doing now is you're being an advocate for recovery. What about for the people that don't understand what that means? I mean, how do you make it okay for people to do like you by leading by example, giving someone a picture, a face on recovery. How do you get that word out? You know, it's amazing. The opportunity just kind of presents itself. I really have never had to sell recovery or myself, my story. Uh, people come into our lives. It's just real amazing. I guess because First of all, there weren't a lot of recovering professionals in the Snoqualmie Valley where I live. Mm -hmm. So I got calls from everybody for everything. Mm -hmm. And I could, because of my own experience, I could ferret out what had addiction attached to it. And mm -hmm. it often, oh my God, people don't want to tell you they drink too much or use drugs. They want to tell you what a jerk they're married to right. or how terrible their <laughs> boss treats them. Yeah, yeah. And when I can say you don't have, you know, just like my sponsor said to me, you don't have to live like this anymore. And they know they're hurting yeah. at some level. So it's a matter of pulling their covers and saying, you don't have to live like this anymore. Mm -hmm. Val, we were just talking uh, off the radio about what we're seeing now with opiates and things like that. But can you talk a little bit about that? I'm um, quite worried about that, Susan. Opiate narcotics seem to be the drug of choice this decade, and it's primarily because they're legal. You know, they go to their doctors and they complain about some real pain and others fabricated pain, and they doctor shop and they can buy them on the street now. And do you know that on my internet at home, I'm an alcohol and drug counselor, I probably get about 30 hits a day from pharmaceutical companies. Really? Yeah. I'm just appalled. And, and what are they? What do you think they're they're hitting you for? They are trying to make sales. That's really. I mean, scary. they don't care. They're not. They're not uh, being careful about who their market is. For a while, the FDA had stopped, had blocked some of that, but it's back with a vengeance. And if you've got the money and you've got the time and you've got an internet, you can get just about anything yeah. you want but that, that way. But that has to start somewhere. So, I mean, if you go to the doctor and you're having some kind of condition or some kind of pain and the doctor says, here, try this. I mean, what is a person to do to try to keep themselves from getting involved in addictive behavior. You know, I think if you know that you have any kind of predisposition to addiction, 
that you would caution your uh, personal care mm -hmm. physician and nurses, whoever's in the office, and just say, I want somebody to monitor mm -hmm. this. I'd like to have my husband, my wife, my whoever monitor my use because what I'm hearing from everybody is they're highly addicted. Right. And some people get hooked very innocently. Val, we were just talking uh, off the radio about what we're seeing now with opiates and things like that. But can you talk a little bit about that? I'm um, quite worried about that, Susan. Opiate narcotics seem to be the drug of choice this decade, and it's primarily because they're legal. You know, they go to their doctors and they complain about some real pain and others fabricated pain, and they doctor shop and they can buy them on the street now. And do you know that on my internet at home, I'm an alcohol and drug counselor, I probably get about 30 hits a day from pharmaceutical companies. Really? Yeah. I'm just appalled. And, and what are they? What do you think they're they're hitting you for? They are trying to make sales. That's really I mean, scary. they don't care. They're not. They're not uh, being careful about who their market is. For a while, the FDA had stopped, had blocked some of that, but it's back with a vengeance. And if you've got the money and you've got the time and you've got an internet, you can get just about anything yeah. you want. But that, that way. But that has to start somewhere. So I mean, if you go to the doctor and you're having some kind of condition or some kind of pain, and the doctor says, "Here, try this." I mean, what is a person to do to try to keep themselves from getting involved in addictive behavior? You know, I think if you know that you have any kind of predisposition to addiction, that you would caution your uh, personal care mm -hmm. physician and nurses, whoever's in the office, and just say, I want somebody to monitor mm -hmm. this. I'd like to have my husband, my wife, my whoever monitor my use because what I'm hearing from everybody is they're highly addictive. Right. And some people get hooked very innocently. What I want to do is give out some numbers here in the closing moments. Uh, in, in the greater Seattle area, we can give you the Alcoholics Anonymous number, which is area code 206-587-2838. Uh, naturally, there's a national call center, which has all the national resources. Uh, if you're listening in any other part of the country, they will be able to direct you. 1-800-561-8158. And the number for Res 12, we've been talking a lot about Res 12 tonight, is? 425-823-8844, and it's www.residencex.com. II.org. Val Roney joining us tonight. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. And uh, in the few seconds we have left, if there's a woman out there in trouble, what do you say to her? Don't try to do this alone. Get some help. Talk to somebody you trust. Call Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Residence 12. Call me. I'm in the phone book. <laughs> do something. Do something. Get active and do something. There's no such thing as a hopeless alcoholic. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Val, for joining us. Uh, Susan, always nice to have you alongside. Thank you, Neil. My pleasure. privilege for me to now introduce our guest speaker, Thomas Hollywood A.
that, huh? You ever been reading like that? My name is Thomas Henderson, and I'm an alcoholic who abused cocaine. I'm glad to be here tonight. I, me and my friend uh, came down here, and I went down to see one of them. I thought I wouldn't see this shit no more for a while. But you know how it is. I'm glad to be here in San Diego tonight uh, for, for Cocaine Anonymous. It's always a privilege for me to talk to cocaine addicts because you and I have something very much in common, and that is we did cocaine too much, too often, too long to be alive. My friend, somebody told me that Cocaine Anonymous is like the Mafia, you know? You leave, you die. <laughs> and I believe there are only two emotions, and that's love and fear. And you can't feel them both at the same time. And as a result of my sobriety today, I want to tell you right off, I'm not afraid anymore. Fear is not a part of my life today. And this program gave me that. I'm going to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, so I'm going to tell you what it was like. I was raised in a dysfunctional home. I didn't learn what dysfunctional meant until I got to these rooms. I thought it was normal shit. My mother and father were both alcoholics. They drank alcoholically, they fought on weekends, and I thought that was normal stuff. Matter of fact, when I talk to kids today, I, I tell them about perceptions. Growing up, I perceived that alcohol was a way to have a good time. In other words, in order to have a good time in life, I had to be drinking, smoking, snorting, tooting, something because I saw my mother and father do that. Alcohol was my first drug of choice because it was the only drug I knew. But when I used alcohol in my early days, I never abused it. I just drank it because I was trying to get an early preview to adulthood. My mother and father drank every weekend. They got drunk every weekend. And they fought. My mother was a tough little gal. My mother was 15 years old when she gave birth to me. And, and the guy she had made love to in order to make me uh, was a, a guy that was in the military. And it was kind of like a one night affair. And, and I was conceived. And I didn't see my father until I was 21 years old. So I grew up with my mother. And, and by the time I could really remember what was going on and figure out what was going on in life, I knew that guy in the house was not my father. I knew that because my mother made that perfectly clear many times. I remember at four or five years old, him coming after me for one reason or the other, and her saying, 
that's not your child. Don't you put your damn hands on it. And it gave me power, but it also made me feel different and apart from, because you see, they started having children in the house. And my name was Thomas Edward Henderson, and their name was Nettie Lavinia Rivers, and then Victoria Jean Rivers, and then James Rivers Jr., and then Franchot Gray Rivers. And my name was Thomas Edward Henderson. Where the fuck did that name come from? So I don't know about you, but growing up I felt apart from, I felt different, I felt, you know, I felt unwhole. Where is my father, mother? Well, your father's name is Billy, and he was in the military, and he's not here. She could never tell me where my dad was. She didn't know what state he was in. She didn't know if he was alive. She didn't know. I don't know about you, but growing up, man, I felt real bad, you know. And then my mother was kind of a fine little gal and flighty, you know what I mean? I'm 10 years old. My mother's only 25, so she's a hot little mama. And I used to, you know, she had a cleaners in my neighborhood and did some after-hour joints. And, 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 and I used to see men, she was friendly with men beside my stepdad. And I used to always think one of those guys was my father. I just never knew. At 12 years old, something very profound happened in my life. My mother and father, as they've done every week. See, in my house, it was kind of like WrestleMania. There was a fight every week, just a different winner. Well, this night was different. I was 12 years old. And my father straddled my mother, and he was beating her face to a pulp. I could hear the fist and the flesh meet. It was it's a thud hitting her. And they were both drunk. And she had bought him a gun for Christmas. So after he had beat her, he went out to the car to get a bottle or whatever. I'm a 12 years old. I'm, I, I want to help her, but I can't. He's a big man. Well, they end up on the porch. My father's coming back. She's got the rifle in her hand. And she says to him, don't take another fucking step. And of course, the drunk that he was and the alcoholic that he was, he took another step, and she blew his ass off the porch with the rifle. Several things went through my little mind at that time. Number one, that alcohol had made my mother shoot my father. Number two, why did that fucker take another step? <laughs> And I knew that alcohol had a lot to do with what had happened that night. That was my early association with alcohol and family. <laughs> you know, my mom shot my dad, or my stepdad. It's really profound that I ended up being a National Football League all-star, pro bowler, superstar. 
because at an early age I had nobody to take me to the ballpark to play catch with. I did all of this on my own pretty much because I remember my stepdad who wasn't really into sports. He'd been working since he was a kid and he was from South Carolina. I remember one day I was about 10, 11 years old and he took me to the ballpark and I was playing little league baseball. You know, God knows I might have been a great baseball player, but my stepdad came to see me play one day and I got in the batter's box and, and, and I, I struck one and I missed the ball and, and, and strike two and I, I missed the ball and, and I struck out. And, and I heard behind the batter's cage uh, 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 a southern drawl voice cry out, Boy, you're the sorriest thing I ever seen. And that really didn't encourage me to pursue baseball. And I didn't want him around no more. You know? My mother and father stayed together for another 15 years. That's alcoholism and codependency at its best. I have to tell you also tonight that beside all that, being a frightened little guy not, without having a dad, I took a lot of walks and I cried a lot. I cried and I swore to God that I was going to be bigger and better and I was going to be stronger and I wanted to do this. And I got to tell you something very profound, I believe, is that I had dreams. And I want to tell you this, every one of my dreams came true. And every one of my dreams broke and it came true. Isn't it wonderful to fantasize about something and wish for something? But when it comes true, it's, it's, it's kind of like an orgasm. All of my dreams came true and every one of my dreams broke. I wanted to play pro football. I wanted to go to the Super Bowl. I wanted to be all pro. I wanted to go to Hollywood. Well, hell, they named me Hollywood. Every one of my dreams came true. Every one of my dreams were broken. Because every time one of my dreams came true, I was never satisfied with it. I wanted something else. What do we call that? Obsessive compulsive? I left Austin after my mother got this reputation with the gun. She, after she shot my stepfather, it was Annie Oakley. She, she became, you know, this woman with a gun. My mother ran several after-hour joints. See, you know, and, and you, you're not so surprised how I turned out the way I turned out when I tell you where I came from. You see, because I was raised in a middle-class black neighborhood. Uh, middle, middle-class ghetto neighborhood. I just met, I was never hungry. It's not surprising I ended up addicted to something. Anyway, my mother was bootlegging and selling chicken at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and, and of course she started carrying the gun, and she had like a tattoo of the cylinders on her breast here. Now, I have to tell you, my mother is my significant other because I never had any real ties to my stepfather. 
The respect I have for him today and admiration is that he fed us as long as I was there. But my mother was my significant other. So it was like clockwork every Friday, Saturday night, my mother was shooting in the air. That's not normal shit, that's So I finally broke away from home with these dreams and aspirations. All of a sudden, I don't know where it came from, I wanted to prove everybody wrong because, you see, I heard them whispering about me. I, I hung around the screen doors at night and listened to them play dominoes and talk about me. I was a little bastard without a dad. And I might was going to end up just a little street bum. He ain't going to be worth a damn. You see, I heard him talking about me. And I'd walk and I'd cry and I said, you know, what are you, I'm going to do, do this and I'm going to do that. And I'd cry. And, and I had things to do. I had to prove everybody wrong. So I had these dreams. And every one of them came true. I just didn't know what to do with the dream when it came true. They say, be careful what you pray for. God, let me win the lottery! <laughs> what is it, six million tonight? I left home and, and, and I went to Oklahoma to live with my grandmother. Daddy Mae Higgins. And from there, I had... I had kind of, kind of flunked out of high school. Well, six Fs. Does that qualify? I think that, that'll get it. Six Fs. So, throughout my junior and senior year in high school, I had to go to night school, Sunday school, makeup school, give me a credit school, wherever they were having school, I was at it. And I finished with my class. Now, I can't tell you where I got that energy or that determination. I just wanted to finish with my class. When I finished high school in 1971, I was not recruited highly by football teams around the country. Uh, I was smoking marijuana on a daily basis. I had only been drunk once or twice in my life by the age of 18. I had had wild trips on orange sunshine. And you know, i got to tell you tonight, I smoked marijuana for 15 years and I don't even like it, never did like it. I mean, the only thing marijuana ever did for me was make me eat a family-sized bag of Oreos. No, uh, ding-dongs or Doritos or four or five cheeseburgers. Red eyes. Every day, every morning. I ended up walking on a small college in Oklahoma called Langston, and I showed up on Wednesday, and I was starting linebacker on, on Saturday, and I went on for four years, made All-America, consensus All-America, three years, and one of my dreams came true. Well, my first dream was to be All-America. Well, I made All-America my sophomore year. And then I, well, I wanted to make AP All-America. See, I made NAIA All-America. I wanted to be on the big boys All-America. Well, that happened too. 
Me and Tutal Jones were the All-American defensive end in 1973. It's really a sad story. I told you my dream came true. And then I wanted to get drafted to the NFL. Well, I not only got drafted, I got drafted in the first round. The Dallas Cowboys. I left home at 15 from a dysfunctional surrounding. At 21, I was in Super Bowl 10. Six years, just six years removed from this dysfunctional shit, I'm in the Super Bowl where a guy is flipping a 200-year-old coin because, you see, America was 200 years old, and he's flipping that coin, and my little street head, I'm thinking, hey, man, I should like to have that coin, man. <laughs> That go pretty good with my 1903 dime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you like me, you know, I mean, you know, we save coins and like, oh, this is 1927. You know, a 200-year-old coin. Nothing had changed inside my head and my body. You know, I, I was a Southern Baptist, and um, I was baptized a Christian at six years old, and you know, I never stopped being a Christian. I never stopped being a man who believed in Jesus Christ. That's just my belief. I'm not promoting anything here. Yeah, but I just didn't live that lifestyle because I didn't know how to live their deal because, they see, they told me what to believe and how to believe it. I, I believed in the concept of God, but I didn't like the way they were teaching it to me. So I stayed away from those people. You see, when I got to the NFL, I didn't know how to live. I had too much money. I was too crazy, too young, and I didn't have any idea of how to live. You see, because I grew up in a house where we moved about 12 times, there was never no home. They never owned a home, so they moved a lot. So. Consequently, when I got money, matter of fact, when I got drafted in the NFL, I did what most players do. I bought a new car and a stereo system. <laughs> of course, I didn't have nowhere to park it or plug it in, but I bought it. During Super Bowl 10 in Miami, Florida, 1975, I was a young, impressionable young man who didn't know how to live, but I was just checking it out. What, what's up? What's, what's happening? So I go to a club. Joe Namath owns the club, and there's the Temptations and the Pointer Sisters and, and all these stars. I sat on the front row of the Western Porter Sisters show, and I kind of knew, you know. I said, I want one of y'all. Which one? <laughs> uh, which one? Let's see. Oh, let's see. She's, ooh. It was four of them then. <laughs> but one of the things happened to me then was I met something that, that I would abuse for the next seven, eight years, and that was cocaine. See, the first time I did cocaine, it, it, it filled all the holes. It made me all that I wanted to be. The thing about cocaine, it fixed me right now. 
There was no waiting. And I liked that. I liked cocaine when I first snorted. I wish I could stand up here tonight and tell the newcomer that it was all bad, but no, it wasn't all bad. It got bad real quick, but I hung in there. I played for a man named Tom Landry, bald-headed fella, first cousin of God. <laughs> and he's one of them holier-than-thou kind of people. And I resented everything about Tom Landry because he had everything I wanted. So he had a wife and a family. He owned a home. He had children that loved him. He had a great job. He had Christianity. He had a higher power. He had faith. And I had none of it. I have not no part of it. And so I didn't like him because I didn't have what he had. And I despised what he had because I couldn't figure out why I didn't have it. But I didn't want it. You get that? It's just like an addict, ain't it? So all of my problems and disagreements with Tom Landry were because I resented what he had, all that he had that was good that I didn't have. I didn't have a father. And in 1975, I met that guy who made me. After 21 years, this man had never looked me up, had never called, had never sent a Christmas card, had never sent a tricycle or a truck or nothing. He came into my life, son! I was a cowboy now, see? And of course, as sick as that was, and immediately I knew that me and my father, I, I know I didn't like him very much because the first thing we did together was smoke pot. And we smoked pot on his brother's grave, who had been hit in the head with a brick in New York on a dope deal. My next few years in the National Football League were spent snorting cocaine. By the age 25, I had played in three Super Bowls. We had won Super Bowl 12. I had friends like Richard Pryor and Marvin Gaye, and, and the list goes on. People who I call beautiful people. One thing we all had in common is we abused cocaine. And I'm not breaking anybody's anonymity. Everybody knows that already. By age 25, 10 years removed from that dysfunctional place in Austin, because I haven't come from anywhere but a dysfunctional place, and I haven't found out how to live yet. Maybe you might know how I feel if you're sitting here tonight that you didn't know how to live until you got here and heard how other people were living. Because your parents had done the best thing they knew to do. My mother and father passed on to me what was passed on to them. I forgive them. 
I don't have no adult children with alcoholic issues. Every issue I got, I can take care of in the 12 steps of this program. Because if I get to go on all them programs, see, it'd be, I'd be 24 hours a day in everything. So I'm a little bit of everything. Ain't nothing these 12 steps can't work out, I don't believe. If there's something that can't work out, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. Five years of the Dallas Cowboy, my life got out of control. My life got, as we say in these rooms, unmanageable. I think Bill Cosby said it best, said, you know, oh yeah, uh, cocaine enhanced my personality. So what if you're an asshole? Well, I was an asshole. It, it, it enhanced my assholeism. You see, I have friends today, and, and I didn't have friends back then. I, I just had people who liked me because of the cocaine I had or because I was Hollywood Henderson or because I was a Dallas Cowboy. Something beside the true sense of friendship. You know, because my friends back then, you ever had friends like this? Yeah, my friends would steal my dope and help me look for it. You, you bet? The Monday before Thanksgiving, 1979, Tom Landry had had enough of my antics because they didn't know who was coming to work the next day. See, by now my nose is completely torn up. I have snorted so much cocaine that the middle of my nose is gone. Bye-bye, see you later. I built a shower in my home that cost me several thousand dollars, a steam room for my nose because this thing in the middle of my nose would come out ever so often. And I would have to, you know, put salt water and water and mix inhalers and all this shit in my nose, man, just to maintain it, you know? It became maintenance. I quit enjoying cocaine after a while, and it became an addictive trip to keep my nose from hurting, to keep the tears from welling in my eyes, because I destroyed the septum in the middle of my nose. About once a week, I would get in my shower, and as blood ran down my chest, across my belly button, into my pubic hairs, from the gush out of my nose. I would blow my nose very hard to the wall in my shower, blood splatting on the wall. And this thing would come out and hit the wall and slide down into the tub. And if it had, had legs, it would have crawled off. That is uh, called a booger. And it was according to how long it had been in there, whether I picked it up and ate it or not. 
because I have blown, I have blown my nose so many nights and said, that's 40 bucks. I'm here to tell you the truth. I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I have also, I have boogers under people's couches today. I have rubbed boogers in people's carpets. Tom Landry fired me, and it was a pretty profound meeting we had. As I sat there on my nose packed with cocaine, he was trying to be nice to me. Thomas, this is the toughest thing I've ever had to do. He said, I've never let a player go the 12th game of the season. He said, but I do not know what to do with you. And I sat back across from him and said, <clears throat> I don't know what to do with you either. Excuse me. I, I was so addicted at that time uh, that it didn't matter what he did. I was addicted to cocaine. Those of you who are here tonight know what I'm talking about when I say I was addicted to cocaine. It had done me pretty bad, and I was feeling awfully bad, but, you know, it's that lonely place that gets us here, I believe, that we want to quit, but we don't know how. That dilemma hits us right between the eyes. And we say we're not going to do it again, and we do it again. That's the loneliest place I've ever been, is wanting to quit not knowing how. So he fired me. And of course, being the cocaine addict that I was at the time, I said, oh, excuse me, you can't fire me, I quit. I retired. So I officially retired from pro football at 26 years old. Well, it wasn't but two weeks passed, I started thinking, oh shit, I'm snorting all this coke, I need money. I said, I want to come back. And they said, too late. So I was out for the rest of the year, but I got paid. Several people came to see me during that four weeks before the year ended in Dallas. They met me in parking lots like, it's, like they were from the mafia, and they parked their car across the parking lot, and, and I meet them in the middle of the parking lot, and I stand there, and these were high officials in the cowboy organization, and they would say to me, you know, Thomas, it, it's out that, that you're, you're doing it, and you need to do something about it. And I go, well, man, I don't know where you're getting that information from, but yeah, it ain't true. <laughs> and uh, they would go back to their car, and I would get back to my car, and I would cry. I would cry because I was hurting real bad. And I knew they were right, but I knew I couldn't quit. I didn't, how, how am I going to quit? 
they, they made it sound so simple like you got to quit. I didn't know how to quit. I didn't know where this room was. So that year ended and I did not quit. And I got traded to the San Francisco 49ers. Nobody told Bill Walsh he was getting a cocaine addict up in San Francisco. So I showed up in San Francisco, they gave me a bunch of money, and I, I went out in free base for about, oh, five, six days and came to work, came to the training camp. Uh, and I had my helmet on, all strapped to my chin, and my shoulder pads, and my knees, and everything, and my shoes. Number 50 in San Francisco. Uh, it was on the ground. I stretched my hamstring, then I laid back and stretched my, my, my quad, and, and then I went to sleep. I'm probably one of the only football players in the history of the game uh, to go to sleep in the middle of practice. Well, they released me the next day. And, and of course, they traded me to the Houston Oilers. But nobody told Bob Phillips he was getting a cocaine addict. So I practiced about 20 minutes and said, oh, my leg is hurting. And I was on injury reserve for 11 weeks, and they paid me $150,000 just to you know, go in and get ice on the back of my leg, and I go free base. I didn't tell you how I started free base, and I don't need to tell you. You know, wherever there's coke to be snorted, there's coke to be based. But after 1980, the pain got too bad. I was just hurting. My life was unmanageable. I was spending thousands of dollars. I was alone because I was using alone. I had a dozer and I was getting my dogs fucked up. My roommate, Too Tall Jones, he, he, he moved away from me. I was alone, and I didn't know why I was alone, because you know why I was alone? Nobody did it like I did it. I had nobody who did it like I did it. People used to leave me in motel rooms, and, and while they were closing the door, they looked back and say, hey man, you're going to die. I don't understand people who leave the door. I don't understand that. That was good. So in January 1981, I called uh, Pete Roselle and I said, Pete, I'm a coke addict. This cocaine is about to kill me. And I'm addicted to this stuff. Will you give me some help? So they sent me to treatment in Arizona. Went over to a place there called Camelback Hospital. Stayed 60 days, had nose surgery, fixed my nose. I was sure this program was going to fix me. And, and I felt fixed. You know, I, I, I drank beer and everything through the program, but I didn't think that meant anything. I remember a friend of mine coming to get me out of treatment. He drove my car over from Dallas, had a black Mercedes Benz, smoke windows, sunroof, the whole deal, and, and uh, we started across the desert, headed back to Texas, and I rented my blood compartment. I just got out of treatment, 64 days, good treatment, good intense treatment for cocaine addiction. And I rolled me a big fat joint, and I looked at my friend, lit it up, I said, Yeah, I think this program's gonna work.
back to cocaine in, in, within hours. By the time I got to Dallas, 24 hours, I was back on coke. And it was downhill from there. By February 1982, I was broke, homeless. I spent everything. I lost the Super Bowl rings. Everything was gone because I give it, I give it away to cocaine. And I had the same thing going out of football that I had going in. A car and a stereo system. With nowhere to park it and nowhere to plug it in. Nineteen eighty two I became an alcoholic because it was cheaper. <laughs> I started drinking sangaree and tonic. <laughs> 83, I moved to California, Long Beach, California. If you read my book or read the newspaper, you know that I was charged with sexual misconduct. That I had sex with a 15-year-old girl while we pre-based cocaine. It's true. I had nothing to do with anybody who was disabled or that deal. What was true was enough. And it was my emotional bottom. It was my spot. I was ready to go on home. I was ready to go ahead and leave this place because I had fallen too far to ever lift my head again. What is Thomas Anderson going to do now? So I wanted to kill myself. And the only reason I didn't kill myself is because I was afraid I'd be successful at it. The doctor told me that suicide was a permanent solution for a temporary problem. He told me I could get over anything. I went into treatment in November 1983 at the care unit in Orange, California. I was facing jail, prison, humiliation, moral charges. What, what really happened was bad enough, but to add all the other little things on top of it were a little embarrassing. And it still is a little embarrassing because if you hear it from me, I'll tell you that when I freebase cocaine, I didn't care what was going on. Sex was part of my deal. And if you're anything like me, sex is part of your deal. And anybody freebasing cocaine, that whole arena is slavery. You do what you got to do to get a hit, don't you? I did. I went into treatment. And I didn't think I was going to make it. My first few days in the program, I heard people saying they had five, six years. They were, it was an Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to a Cocaine Anonymous meeting in Newport Beach, California, on 32nd Street, the first meeting in Orange County. And that's my home group. You see, this past November 8th, I celebrated five years clean and sober. I went through treatment for 42 days. Then I went to another treatment program for 60 days. And in that seven months, because after I left the other program, I moved to Laguna Beach, I moved into a house where I had a little room, 
I had a car. But, you know, I'm going to show you how it works in, this, in these rooms. See, nobody asked me for my autograph when I first got sober. I was a little concerned with that. But one of my first vehicles was a little Datsun 210. Now, to show you how it was, the car was worth, I paid $200 for it, and I owed on it. <laughs> I'm making payments on a $200 note, you know. But one thing I did, I went to meetings three, sometimes four times a day for seven months. I went to over 500 meetings. It was my job to stay sober. That's the only job I had. You see, I had to go to meetings the way I used, and that was all day long. Some people say, do 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, if I sponsor somebody, I got to tell them to do it the way I did it. I need 90 meetings in 30 days. People go, well, I don't want you to be my sponsor. Thank you very much. Seven months over, I went to prison on those charges. Well, because at about four months over, I got a deal in my head that I could fix it. Money always fixed things. So I came into some money, and I went to the, 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 one of the girls, and I said, look, you know, here, what, what do you want, man? You know this, this, this. So I, I offered $10,000, and they gave my money to the police, and I got arrested again. So I got charged with bribery of the court. So I had to plead no contest to the charges, which I didn't like very much. And I got sentenced to two years and four months in prison. Some of you may think, God, man, that was rough. Well, some people think I got punished. I like to look at it like I was rescued. Because what two years and four months did for me was gave me a time to learn how to live. You see, I took my big book and my 12 and 12 to prison with me. If you've got jail time to do here tonight, some of you newcomers, if you're here uh, because uh, the court sent you here, it's okay. Just keep coming back. And keep coming back when you get out. For two years and four months, I have a unique opportunity to study the program. And how can this program work in my life? I'm bright. I'm smart. I need to figure this thing out because I want to know how to live. For two years and four months, I became a student of my program, this program, these 12 steps, these promises are happening in my life. I celebrated my first AA birthday in prison. I celebrated my second AACA birthday in prison. I celebrated my third birthday in prison. Good meeting, too. I celebrated my fourth year at home. I celebrated my fifth year at home. And it's wonderful. So 
sobriety is profound, sobriety is wonderful. I believe sobriety is about action. For me it is. Because you look at a guy who had a moral charge, who was a has-been football player, who has friends today, who makes a living today, and it didn't seem like that it was at all possible because of our society being so moral conscious. Today I know how to be successful, but I also know how to handle it. The sobriety has given me something that nobody else has ever given me. The 12 steps have given me something that no one else has ever given me, and it's something that's mine. My 12 steps are mine. The way I work them is mine. My sobriety is mine. It's the only honest thing I've ever done in my life. My sobriety is the only honest thing I've ever done. In other words, if, you, if you've been sober honestly, you got to be proud where you live, and that's deep down. I'm grateful I'm sober. I'm not so grateful that I'm an alcoholic, though. I mean, deep down in my gut there, it, it, I, I don't like to be an alcoholic. I, I never intended to be. I don't think anybody here ever intended to be a dope addict. I, I don't remember pulling on my mother's apron and saying, Mother, you, you know what I want to be when I grow up, Mother? Or what, son? An alcoholic? I think in sobriety, results are, are pretty important. I feel like for the last five years, I've walked around with a broom and a dustpan, cleaning up the wreckage of my past. Because I feel like if you don't clean up the wreckage, something's always going to be missing in your sobriety. You can't push it aside or forget about it. We've got to work through it. We've got to recognize it. You see people in the rooms, man, who it never seems to get any better for them. They, they're, they're working through economic hardship, and they're not working. That <laughs> comes to me and say, oh, man, I'm having really some economic insecurity. Well, why? Oh, I'm not working, so. You see, because when we start getting sober, I believe, and we want to go for our our goals or, or, or do things, it's okay. We don't have to be afraid to go back and be husbands. We don't have to be afraid to go back and be professors or construction workers or teachers or doctors or lawyers or whatever we are. We can't be afraid to go on back and get into the real world. See, there's life after the program. Relationships. I'm married. Sometimes it's tough in a relationship. It's not always easy. But I, my wife, I love my wife, and we're buddies and we're friends, but that don't mean we still can't have some problems in our relationship. My friend is in town. My sponsor, Jimmy Daniels. And I love this. Stand up, man, please. I love this. It's my sponsor, Jimmy Daniels.
if you if you'd have told me uh, five years ago that I had Jimmy Dan for my sponsor, I'd have shot you in the head. <laughs> We went to Tijuana today and got grateful. <laughs> Sobriety is profound. If a guy like me, Thomas Anderson, can be clean and sober, anybody can. You got to want it, you got to want it every day. You see, the thing I've done in my program is I work step one every single day. 100%. You can't get a 95 on step one. Because if you clean, you've done it 100%. You can get C's and D's on those other steps, but you'll come around. I promise you one thing. If you work step one 100%, that's the clean step. You won't use drugs or alcohol anymore. And if you want to get your life together, you'll go on and try to take some other steps. Because you can, as my friend says, you know, be, be you know, a year sober, unmarred by single-day growth. <laughs> yeah, because even in my sobriety, man, I've been dry sometimes. Anybody ever been dry? You know, I'm, I'm kind of like a fire hazard, you know what I mean? I, <laughs> My sponsor, Jimmy Daniels, told me, you can't practice these principles in all your affairs, better change some of your affairs. I've got to tell you tonight, my sobriety is real. I'm real. I am truly grateful for Live at Five, Cocaine Anonymous, to have me come down here. It's always my pleasure because I do this kind of stuff for a living. Although I can't talk about program when I talk at high schools and colleges and, and different places I speak around the country, but this is my way of giving it back. And I want to put in a plug for Cocaine Anonymous that in July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in New York City at the Grand Hyatt on 42nd Street, Cocaine Anonymous World Convention, I'm going to be the Saturday night speaker. Hey, 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 that's if I make it. You know what I'm saying? You know, I believe we have to be optimistic in our sobriety. You know, because you, you'll talk to people in the program, they'll go just one day at a time. But does that mean I can't have layaway, goddammit? I mean, can I put something in layaway, asshole? That's too pessimistic. I, I believe optimism comes along with good sobriety. I think we need to encourage optimistic sobriety. It has to be fun. Can't be that painful. I was at a meeting in Laguna, a speaker meeting. A guy took a 13-year case. You know, he stood up there, and I'm sitting there, and, you know, I got about uh, about four months. I'm sitting there listening to this guy speak. I'm wanting to be the speaker, of course. They're, they're like all of you out there right now. I, I know that you think I would love to be the speaker. Uh, it's just normal. But this guy was talking and getting his birthday cake, and, and he said, you know, this 13 years has been real tough, and... Um, I wanted to commit suicide and everything. I was sitting there thinking, God, when I get a 12, I'm, uh, 12 years, I'm going to drink. 
I ain't gonna try to get that 13th year, man. <laughs> results. That's what you see with good sobriety, is results. You see, I get results today because I'm responsible. I'm reliable. I have self-credibility, something you can't buy. I'm responsible today. Sobriety is profound. I really do love each and every one of you. I'm grateful you had me down here to talk. I'm glad I'm sober enough to talk. And I have my sponsor here tonight, so I wouldn't lie. <laughs> Try to be too profound. But we do see results in sobriety. If we're not getting results in sobriety, we need to work on our program a little more. We need to encourage people into results. I love every one of you, and this has felt real good. And I feel real good right now, and I know God has done what he needs to do tonight. Thank you for letting me share. It's a privilege for me to now introduce our guest speaker, Thomas Hollywood A. Greetings, everyone. I'm Fernando. I am your secretary for this meeting. Let us open this meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I want to bring to your attention um, a scripture in Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways and acknowledge Him and He shall direct your path. That was pretty hard to understand for me. It says, how can I not work with my understanding? Uh, why do I, how do I know when I'm running in God's understanding? How do I know He's directing my paths? Hmm. Well, the answer just came to me. The fact is, when I get on my knees and I thrust my heart into the Lord and ask and seek His ways, acknowledge Him in all my ways, He shall direct my path. Well, I will feel the zeal of the Lord. I have felt the zeal of the Lord. I have felt uh, productivity, uh, rhythm, when the Lord is in guidance and empowering His uh, His will, one of the ways I used to know the will of God is when I was 
working a lot of hours and I would pray the Our Father in desperation because I didn't sleep enough and I had to go back and drive semi and drive truck and deliver milk, bread, cheese, meat, produce to the stores in Northern California and the power of God will come and, and help me. And I'd be so busy delivering so much and finally about two o'clock in the morning, excuse me, in the afternoon, I would look up to heaven and I said, okay, that's enough. Turn the power off. Let's calm this thing down because the zeal of the Lord had taken over and it was God's will that I deliver bread, milk, meat, and so forth to his kids. I believe the power of God hits us when, we, when first of all, we, we are under his will in a service-oriented task. Okay? Uh, we're getting paid, yes, but we're doing a service for the community, a valuable service for the community. One of the service works I have for my community, now that I'm retired and I don't no longer drive semi, I willingly uh, take the books to a meeting at the park, willingly. I do two meetings back to back, one 12 Steps AA and one Alnon. And the Alnon, uh, I started it, and there's, there were seven people there today. And we, every, every, uh, every week, we hit on two steps and write on questions from a workbook, which is a very intelligent approach. And the words are already um, measured out by seasoned people and extremely the pathway to recovery workbook in Elnon, we're using that and I'm getting a big kick out of concentrated effort and and going deep and going long. On the other one, on the 12 step program, we read from the 12 and 12 and we read today, we read the tradition seven which states that, uh, you know, for our, we are self-contributing through our own contributions, and that helps us to grow up, makes a lot of fun when you go out to eat, and the waitress says, there's seven of you, and you all want seven different tickets? And they say, yeah, you're going to get tipped seven different ways. Better <laughs> So, uh, yep, I like it. I like the program. I love the program. It gives me busy now that I'm, you know, basically tomorrow, for instance, I buy donuts, I take coffee to the meetings, and in addition to that, we, I make pancakes. Uh, it's my job now to make pancakes since the wife went to go help her parents cook and clean their house and stuff. She'll be gone for a few weeks. And in the evening, we have to chop up onions and tomatoes and lettuces and stuff and take the podium, speaker, and all the, the equipment back to the park to have a night meeting. In the morning, about 25 people show up for breakfast. Only about two-thirds eat when they do show up. And then the, uh, in the evening, everybody eats. We go through about 
30 hamburgers and about 20 hot dogs and a lot of side dishes and we have a speaker it's pretty cool it's pretty nice so getting back to this verse that says trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path so you know what i'm leading to you know what i'm going to i always say the same thing in a different approach in all your ways in all your ways acknowledge him even in my hiccups even in my gambling even in my smoking cigars even in my judgmental criticizing condemning murmuring and complaining even in my big mouth that i'm saying the wrong things i'm cruel <laughs> how many of us are cruel yeah we're just it's our lower nature to be cruel to be you know to there's some of us that are gifted and are not cruel because they made a choice and god has blessed them but a lot of other of us we have to work hard on it like i have to work hard on it. i gotta read first john one through five when i'm getting too cruel and i'm not responding properly sometimes the pressure is just too much and i respond with self-pity or i become cruel so that's where i need to read more and especially the gospels where it gives me pure love pure love from reading first john one through five it mentions the love of god 45 to 48 times depending on what translation it mentions the word that he is light the source of light about seven or 15 times. I can't remember exactly what number of that. Um, so he, the Lord is, uh, he's all over us, guys. So we acknowledge him in all our ways. I thank God I'm a misfit when I mess up. I thank God I don't have a new pickup truck. I thank God I'm not going to England to to go to meetings so I just give hints you know where my goals I like to be I thank God for all things I thank God when I mess up so that's the point I'm making I'm acknowledging God in all my ways what's the other part let's say for instance the reason I'm talking like this is because I had a sponsee that was uh, three weeks sober he went to court they took the kids away and Anyway, he just texts me today. He said, I let you get down. And I've been telling him to acknowledge God in all his ways. And as I was trying to explain to him, telling him that we don't have, God has no recourse then to get out of the way and let my own actions and ways uh, start to destroy me. Uh, either alcohol or my mouth or just, you know, get out of the insurance a canopy by not acknowledging God if I was a do, doing the good things I say thank you God uh, I can be better thank you God I get to do a good thing and if I'm not doing a good thing I can say I thank you God I'm not doing a good thing 
That requires guts, folks. That requires a man or a woman to say to God, I thank you, God, I am not doing the right things. You know, you're still going to be in the, uh, in the favorable side because you have acknowledged the Lord respectfully and truthfully and courageously. And you went forward to say, and these, these people that admit they're wrong, they're admit, they, they, that's courage to me. That's really, that's the point where the person is not hiding in shame. It's not enveloped in remorse, morbid reflection. Um, it's a great cleaner. The Lord is trying to clean my pride, my ego. And this is the best way. When I mess up, I confess. Thank you, God, I'm a mess up. I thank you, God, I, I got ridiculed. I thank you, God, I got challenged. I thank you, God. Amen. Um, and sticking up for my recovery and my time and working with people and working with others, people that are really need of the program and getting my rest properly. If the Lord said, if you're not with me, you are against me. God says, if you're not with me, you're against me. So even if, say for instance, I'm gambling my money away, I am still with the Lord if I am admitting it because hope is alive and I'm using my faith and my belief that there is a God and that there's hope for me. I am being honest with the Lord. So what is the Lord going to do? He's going to send me help. I'll give you an illustration. I had another friend that was vaping. He was vaping in the, in the meetings here and there. He went from smoking to vaping, and he said he's spending about $35, $40 a week vaping. So I told him, I asked him, I said, can you commit to thanking God every time you vape? And he looked at me, and he, we did this practice when he didn't have a job and he got a job. And he goes, sure. So he started doing it and he says, best thing that ever happened to me, to thank God that I'm vaping. He goes, the desire went away. The desire to be killing yourself went away and he saved the money. And he's the one that when I needed a television, my TV was going out, he went out and bought me one. I got, you know, it wasn't new, mind you, but it was new to me. And I'm constantly getting, um, constantly getting good, good things coming to me. I always wanted a ladder. I got a big ladder. I got three ladders now. And, that, and I, I'm going to cut the hedges on my tree. And I needed a saw. And uh, I just a guy gave me a ladder and a saw. Exactly what I desired. Um, so I have a lot of hope chest, a lot of things. So, all right, that's enough. I'm running out of words. I just want to say, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The speaking of good words and saying yes and amen and agreeing with them, you get to receive them and make them your own. So let's go ahead and pray out with the, our Father, but let's change the Our Father a little bit. Let us mention the words love, 
Thy love come, thy kingdom come. Give us today our daily love instead of bread. Okay? Let's try that. Here we go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy love come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily love and forgive us of our wrongs as we forgive those who are wrong against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back, family. It's working.